Welcome everybody to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 246 recap on Twitter Spaces. It's Thursday, April 13th, and we have some special guests that are joining us. I'm Mike Schmidt, contributor at Optech and executive director at Brink. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. Hi, Merch. Lisa? Hey, y'all. I'm Lisa, also known as Nifty Night. I worked on the Bitcoin, I worked on the Core Lightning implementation of one of the precursors to splicing, and I currently and working on a side project called Base58, where I teach the Bitcoin protocol. Any upcoming Base58 events that you'd like to plug? Oh, yeah. I should definitely plug Bitcoin++, which is an in-person Bitcoin technical conference we're running in a few short weeks here in Austin, Texas. You can find more info about the conference at our Twitter, which is BTC++. We're super excited about it. We've got an all-scar cast of people who are going to be talking about layer two technology on Bitcoin, as well as like new and proposed ways of doing layer two transactions for Bitcoin. I went last year and it was great content and a great bunch of attendees to hang out with. So I recommend it. Nicholas? Yeah, hi, I'm Nicholas and I work on Bitcoin Core at Brink, mostly like P2P and fuzzing stuff. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining us today to lend your expertise. We'll jump into the newsletter. The first news item this week is about splicing, which we haven't talked much about on this show. So I think maybe Lisa, we could start to calibrate the audience a bit, maybe just what is splicing and, and why do we want something like that? What are, what are the advantages? And then we can kind of drill into the current state of splicing and then some of these specific topics that have been discussed on the mailing list after. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, that's such a great question. I think splicing is like one of the most exciting protocol updates to Lightning that I think I think few people know about it. I think there's like, you know, it's one of those like slowly growing consciousness. And part of the reason for that is that it's not implemented anywhere yet. So you can't use it. So it's all mostly just exciting, something we're excited about coming. But to tell you what it is, to give you kind of some background on it. So right now, when you have a lightning channel, when you put funds into the channel, you kind of have to decide up front how much capital you want in that one channel. And so those of you who are maybe not as familiar with the Lightning Network channels are kind of like you commit a certain amount of Bitcoin to one particular relationship with one other peer, right? So let's say I wanted to put like 100,000 sats to a channel between myself and merch. Then at any point in time, that gives me like 100,000 sats that I can use to pay merch or to pay out through merch to other people. But if any point in time, I decide that really a relationship between myself and merch deserves or merits like a million sats worth of capital, you know, then currently, how would you how would you go through the process of like adding more capacity in this like channel between myself and merch? You'd have to close the channel, which is one on chain transaction. It has some delays and times built into that, depending on how much you're willing to pay to get the transaction mined and what the mempool looks like and all that. And then I'd have to submit another transaction, so two transactions, to reopen the channel. And then anytime that you close and reopen a channel, there's a period in time in which, you know, for that 100,000 sats I had originally, I was able to do make payments. But while the channel is closing and then while the channel is reopening, that's a couple, that's going to be like at least an hour, maybe more time where you can't actually use that channel there you can't actually keep making payments through this channel while you're basically resizing the channel 
Splicing is a protocol proposal which will let you dynamically resize a channel so you can both go up, so like add sats, go from 100,000 sats to a million in this case. Or if like I had a million sats in a channel and I wanted to maybe reallocate some of those sats to another channel or I wanted to move, pay someone on, pay someone on chain using sats that are currently in a channel. I can use splicing to accomplish this. And the really nice thing about it is you you do all of this in one transaction and you can continue making payments with what's kind of like the left amount, whatever amount of sats you kind of still have in that channel. You can continue making payments. So it's a real big improvement in terms of what I like to think of as like efficiency of where you put your sats in, in Lightning. Um, and kind of one of the really cool sort of grand vision things is Right now, when you have a channel, when you have lightning and lightning channels, you kind of have to make a decision about how much of your, let's say you have like 10 million sats to allocate. Maybe you run a business and that's your treasury, or maybe you're just like a, you know, a, a normal like consumer who uses lightning to buy things. Let's say you have, I'm going to make up a number like 10 million sats. You have to decide how much of that sats you want to keep in a lightning channel so you can buy things with lightning and how much of that to keep on chain so that if you need to, you can make on-chain purchases. Splicing makes it such that you can keep all of your sats, like all 10 million sats you could put into channels right now. So you, you, you're, you have the opportunity of making routing fees on those 10 million sats at any moment. So you don't have to decide how much of that to keep off-chain to make, I mean, to keep on-chain out of a channel to make payments. And it allows you to basically use your Lightning wallet like a, as an on-chain or Lightning wallet very easily. So you, now you can put all your money in a channel. If you ever need to or want to pay someone on chain, you can just splice out a balance out of an existing channel. So it's a it's a really, I think, new and big and I think it's going to be pretty revolutionary in terms of how we think about where on-chain versus enlightening money and it's coming and we're excited about it yeah is there did that cover it is there anything else maybe that i can speak to about how splicing works i I think that makes sense it it sounds like it would lower some of the friction associated with lightning thereby encouraging folks to put more liquidity into the lightning network yeah exactly exactly and it makes it such that when you do decide to put capital into lightning if you like maybe i had made a channel with merch and then later decide that i really needed a bigger channel with nicholas right I could move in one transaction, I could move money out of a channel with Merge and into a channel with Nicholas. And that would all happen in one transaction. Whereas before splicing, I think that would take like four transactions, right? One to reclose Merge's and then another two, two to close to resize one with Merge and then another two to resize the one with Nicholas. So it's just, yeah, I think it's going to be really, really wild at how, how much more dynamic it makes money on Lightning. So I can do a a splice out and a splice in then all in one transaction in this example that you would maybe take half of your channel capacity off off of Merch's channel and and put that into Nicholas's all in one transaction? Yep, that's right. Yeah. Go ahead, Merch. I was wondering, so I think that some Lightning implementations allow multiple parallel channels between two nodes and some do not. Can you speak to the trade-offs of having multiple channels between two nodes versus having a bigger channel and splicing? Yeah, I assume that it's actually nicer. <laughs> yeah, so so kind of so you mentioned so for a long time for Core Lightning, you could only have one channel per peer, and the reason that we did that is that we were anticipating splicing. Splicing. 
as of a few releases ago, we went ahead and just made it so you could have as many channels as you want. But the ideal situation on Lightning is that peers only have one channel between them. And I can ex- let me I can explain kind of my thinking behind that. Maybe other people have different. I think there's definitely some different perspectives on it. But yeah, so like right now, the reason that you have multiple channels, so the reason that multiple channels are kind of a thing that exists on Lightning is really i think there's a there's really it has to do with the fact that on like the v1 of channels only one side has an opportunity to put money in the channel right so when you open the channel only one side really um, builds the transaction and then puts their typically puts their funds in it and then opens it i worked on a long time on a new protocol called dual funding which lets both sides put money in the channel but when you can only have one side putting money in the channel and you as a person who so like let's see me and merch have one channel merch opened a channel to me with a million sats in it but now i need to pay merch i can't take the channel we have and splice into it and then pay him i'd have to just open a new channel and push money to merch so the reason that this is kind of sub i think i think that having multiple channels is a little suboptimal part of the reason for that is now when you're trying to do routing when you create an onion message you usually have to specify which route you want to send it through so then now all of a sudden you need kind of a dynamic you need sort of a dynamic router at every which is the nodes that knows that you know between me and merch there's two possible channels so maybe the onion that i'm routing said go through channel a and really there's only capacity to route the payment through channel b both sides of the nodes need to know like you have to kind of add more logic to the nodes such that they can route over any channel no matter which one the the onion says if that makes sense so there's a little bit of inefficiency or like everyone has to do a little more work there the other thing about having multiple channels it's a really huge cost on the general network like it's kind of one of the tragedy of the commons thing every additional channel that you open creates three new messages on gossip and these are like pretty chunky size there's like they're some of the biggest gossip messages that we have because they contain a lot of signatures. So every time you open a new channel, you're creating a network cost of like amount of new gossip that everyone has to have and maintain as part of their routing tables. So if we're able to introduce something like splicing where there's really no need for 99% of nodes to be able to have just one channel between you and for myself and Merch, for example, and I can add and remove funds when I want, Merch can add and resize funds when we want, then it really makes it such that, yeah, that just cuts out like tons of kind of duplicate information that exists in the the routing table right now. Nicholas, I see your hand up. Yeah, I was like, if I splice in, would I not send out a gossip message to tell the network that there's more capacity? You would, but the old gossip message you had now can be thrown away. Okay, okay, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, that makes sense. There's still the same amount of announcements, but you're maintaining less data to to have the whole network set. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. Basically, a new gossip, you would make a new gossip message announcement whenever the channel gets resized, but that basically replaces the old one. So the net amount of gossip that L nodes have to store and circulate doesn't change, right? It's a constant size, basically. So now that we kind of know what splicing is and some of the benefits of it, maybe it would make sense before we jump into the discussions that we covered this week in the newsletter to maybe just give folks an idea of where are we at with implementing this feature on the Lightning Network? You know, it's 
It looks like the draft specification that we noted in the newsletter is a couple of years old. It does seem like there's work being done, but maybe you can quantify where you think this feature is in terms of av eventual availability to folks. Yeah, that's a great question. So I've been working pretty closely with Dusty Damon on the Core Lightning side. He's got a draft of it up. It works. So there's a working implementation that's in draft on Core Lightning. The async side is the same. They have a draft implementation that I don't think has been released yet, but they've been using it kind of to do testing. So I think it's, you know, between two implementations, two implementations of what I would say, I apologize to any implementation that I'm missing out. I usually think of there being four Lightning implementations. I know there's a couple more than that. But so half of the Lightning implementations currently have a sort of in-draft mode working implementation of splicing, which is really exciting. I would expect those to. So what's kind of what happens after that is, you know, for at least for Core Lightning side, we need to get it, you know, through PR review and merged into master. And then it'll basically go out as like an experimental feature. <laughs> So gated behind like an experimental thing. And then the, I don't, I think async's probably similar if they haven't already launched it or if it's like behind experimental flag, et cetera. So once those go out and we can do interrupt testing, then that would basically make it spec and it would be available on both Core Lightning and Eclair to work. And it would, it would be something you could use. So I think we're, I think we're actually like pretty close to it as as Mike mentioned it's been in process for a few years now it's you know a little bit of a difficult change to make because of how many things you kind of have to keep track of while the you know you can have multiple candidate splices at the same time so you could make a splice and then rbf it so um and then in the meantime have a bunch of hglcs you're still keeping track of so it, it's quite a involved protocol change it kind of touches some of the more complicated state machinery of a lightning node but we have two implementations that are basically mostly have it finished now and i know that the ldk team is ramping up to get it done i think it's one of the higher priorities on their roadmap they recently released like a new roadmap so i think there's a good chance of it being live on the network probably by i mean hate making i think i think the safe thing is i say two weeks tm but i'm, I'm kind of hopeful that maybe by this fall we'll start having real like it'll be available for people to use at least maybe in like an experimental fashion if not actually like fully ratified and adopted into the spec we highlighted a couple discussions that were going on regarding the spec in the newsletter and there's also a diagram for folks if you want to follow along in newsletter 246 but the, the first thing that we highlighted, the first segment of discussion was which commitment signatures to send. So we're, we're sort of jumping a bit deeper into the weeds here. But Lisa, can you summarize what this discussion is about, about these different commitment signatures and, and parallel commitment transactions and whatnot? Yeah, definitely. So I think the one, so what you're referring to, so I mean, this kind of goes back to, so this discussion in particular, the one that, or that Mike referenced about which commitment signatures to send kind of has to do with sort of the central like debate there is around how you, how you design a protocol, so to speak. And kind of the, the, the general idea is like when you're making a new splice transaction. So let's say I'll go back to the example of Merch and I have a channel got 100,000 sats in it. I want to make it bigger. I want to make it a million sats. So I made a splice to splice it in. Merch and I have like agreed on the new transaction that's going to have my million new sats in it. So now we've got a, a transaction which is going to replace our existing 
funding transaction on chain. So we've we've made that, we've broadcast it, or we've made it. Um, oh, this is really in the weeds with Lightning, but basically when you make a new transaction, a new funding transaction on Lightning, before you send it out, you need to get signatures for what we call kind of like the outputs on it. So you need commitment transaction signatures before you broadcast it. There was a little bit of a debate in whether or not when we send that, we need to send signatures for all the existing transactions that we already have or should we only incrementally send signatures for the new transaction that we're creating and it was just sort of like what are the pros and cons of doing that I think we all sort of after a long discussion decided that the the right way to do it is to when you've negotiated this new transaction only send the new information so all that you would need to send are the signatures for the commitment transaction and any HDLCs off of this new funding transaction that you've got but kind of like the, the bigger picture there is like a lot of times anytime that you send new commitment signatures for splicing maybe I'm going kind of the wrong direction here in terms of explaining things but the other reason you would send new commitment signatures so maybe that's an easier way whenever you create a new funding transaction you have to exchange commitment signatures but there's another time you have to exchange commitment signatures that other time that you exchange commitment signatures is any time that a payment moves through the channel so if I've got a commitment transaction and then I send a payment out through, what am I saying here? If I have a channel with Merch and I'm sending a payment out through it, so I'm sending a payment over to Merch, in order to do that, we're going to need to update our commitment signatures. So that means basically exchanging some information between us. And if we have a splice in progress, we have to update not just like the current funding transaction, but we also have to exchange these signatures for any potential splice transaction that might get mined sometime in the next whatever so there's potential that basically when you when the commitment transaction gets like updated we have to send a bunch of new signatures just to make the new stuff and whatever i see march i see your hands up i'm gonna say yeah you've got yeah i just wanted to sort of recap what you just said so in a lightning channel, we have funds, in this case, Lisa and I have funds in a channel, which means really that we just have a shared UTXO that we own with a two of two multi-signature. Now, it would, of course, be unsafe to just put money into a two of two multi-sig pot when I don't know whether the other partner is going to be available all the time. So we want a way to recover the funds if the other partner loses their device, goes offline or any other such thing. So before we even broadcast a transaction, we get the commitment of the other side that allows us to take out the funds unilaterally. And that's actually what we needed SegWit for, because before SegWit, there was ways of changing transaction IDs on unconfirmed transactions, which made it impossible to chain unconfirmed transactions reliably. So with SegWit, we sort of can chain other transactions on top of unconfirmed transactions, while even if someone malleates stuff, it doesn't affect the TX ID, so a whole chain of unconfirmed transactions is safe. So with, with a splice in, we have a second funding state that follows our first funding state, and we have to basically change chain all of the commitment transactions on top of that funding. Right. Just to, I, I'm just repeating what Lisa said in other words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're definitely in the weeds here, I think, on how Lightning works. This is probably one of the more 
crucial and also complicated things in lightning in my opinion like when I was learning it, it took me a long time to understand what all this was but anyways yeah so kind of like it was like so we have this process basically we have a channel open for how we resend signatures and the whole kind of debate was should we reuse the existing process that we have where we just resend everything as soon as we send a new commitment we just resend everything which is exactly the right thing to do in the case when a payment is being made However, when the case when a new funding transaction, basically like a splice is being a new splice transaction is negotiated, you could resend everything. You could sign and resend everything, but you really don't need to. The only thing you really need to resend is the new information, like the incrementally new information that you need, which would be all the commitment signatures just for that new splice transaction. If that makes sense. So kind of one of the things at least in the implementation that I thought it's kind of interesting it's not something that you really think about if you're not really used to like talking and designing specs so to speak but one of the like kind of interesting things about like there's like basically it's like we have this process that we use all the time should we use the process that we use all the time which is to resend everything across everything even though none of that information is new your peer already has it we're not giving them new information for the sake of simplicity should we just resend everything so there's never any exception or any cases where you're not sending well that would make sense but just so from like an implementation standpoint like the spec would make it such that it's very simple there's one way you do it you always resend the commitment signatures and then that's just whether it's a payment moving or a new splice you just use the same process and so that's nice because it cuts down the amount of code it cuts down on the amount of in theory like branches that you need in your implementation because there's one way that we do it and that's how we're doing it so that's kind of the send all the signatures debate. The other side of that, which I think is kind of interesting, is we've got, okay, we only need, what new information do we need? Like, this is kind of like the minimal protocol design. You know, when you think about protocols, a large part of the thinking around how you design them is what information, what's like the minimum amount of information I can send to get the job done. So from that perspective, when a new slice transaction is negotiated and created, the only new information that we need to send is the commitment transactions for that particular new splice. So from a protocol perspective, you can cut down on potentially resending a lot of data the purity has by creating a special kind of case in the code where in the case where you've made a splice transaction, you only send the commitment segs for that new transaction. So from an implementation and like in terms of like the amount of code you need to make the to implement the spec, it's a little bit more because now you need to be kind of aware of these two different situations. One situation where you only send one, the other situation where you send everything. So that's kind of just like, I mean, it was sort of just like that. That's sort of like the thing we were going back and forth with as like spec designers that are working on, you know, how lightning should work at a spec level. I think I, so the post that I made to the mailing list, I think walks through these two cases and kind of, I reached the conclusion that, yeah, we should probably just send the more minimal set of new information that we don't have yet. Yeah, Merch, go ahead. I was just wondering, now listening to this description, if I only need to send the new state and I'm in the situation that I've lost maybe a few of the latest updates of my channel because of a backup error, could I not just request that we splice out or splice in some funds and then have the other party commit to the new state and me commit to the new state mm -hmm. and thus flush out all of the old channel toxic backup mess that I no longer can actually serve? 
And yeah. would it would it be a nifty way to to recover into the into a new channel from from a lost state? Nifty, huh? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So <laughs> when you do a splice transaction, yes, you can delete and throw away all of the old data. So that's actually something one of the amazing things in Core Lightning that we do, and is from an implementation standpoint, is once that splice transaction is confirmed. So, you know, that's not when you broadcast it and sign it, but after it's in chain and it's buried, I think we wait like three or six blocks. Then, yes, you delete all of the old data. It's a way you can clean up. So if you had a channel that's been alive for like years and you want to reduce the amount of size that it's taking up in your database, this is all pre-L2. L2 fixes this TM. Yes, that would let you. So, yes, as long as you can get to the point with your peer where I believe where you are trying to think if you need and like a little my like understanding of exactly the mechanism between revocation are a little hazy i'm trying to one i don't know if you there's some assumptions here about like let's assume for whatever reason that you like have the most recent commitment transaction but you've lost like 80 percent of the historic history for that channel i don't know how you got in this situation because there's some stuff at startup that if you don't have exactly the right state your channel will fall into like an error state basically but assuming we avoid that assuming that like your problem is that you lost 80 percent of the channel state but you're still at like the most recent thing and this is a problem because if your peer somehow figures out that they are like you know tries to force close on you in that window of 80 percent of stuff that you don't remember you basically lose all of the funds in the channel i think you like basically can't recover them because you can't find them but if you splice if you make a new splice so if you if you know this has happened and you splice the channel then yes all of that old history would be deleted anyway. So from then on, you can basically take a channel where it was like kind of in a dangerous state. You can splice and that'll like basically reset the whole history to from the point that the splice happened. So yeah, it's actually a really, really great way I think of, and L2 fixes a lot of this, but prior to L2 way of like maybe reducing the amount of data that your node has to store and maintain. There was a second bit of banter about splicing that, Tbast brought up separately, and he, he talked about relative amounts. And I'm curious, what, what does he mean by these relative amounts? And, and why is it important that we use relative amounts when splicing? Yeah, Merch, you Go got ahead. your hand up. Yeah, yeah I, I was going to follow up on something from the previous topic, but I, I can also bring it up later. I think the relative amount stuff is just, you would usually talk about the absolute balances of the sides and the channel when you negotiate stuff. But in HTLCs, we also already assign a certain amount to an HTLC. So I'm, I'm not quite sure about the terminology here. Rel relative amount seems to indicate to me just the amount that you want to splice out in absolute terms, but maybe I'm misunderstanding this. Yeah, no, I think you're right on there, Merch. The I think like, so maybe some history here is kind of useful for understanding why we're having this discussion. So a lot of like splicing kind of is like based on the, the current, like how you open a channel. And when you open a channel, you can only do opens in round sat amounts because round whole Satoshis is the only thing that on-chain 
acknowledges and admits to existing. So when you're opening a channel, you're like, you know, you basically, all right, I want to put like a million sats in, but it's like a whole sat amount. And when you go to splicing, then they had this problem that they were kind of using the same idea where it's like, okay, we're going to make a new splice channel and the new splice channel is going to have like 2 million sats in it total. But part of the problem there is that as the lightning channel is operating, so as funds are moving back and forth, you can send a fraction of a Satoshi. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's kind of like, you know, Bitcoin, you can say you can send a fraction of a Bitcoin on lightning, you can send a fraction of a Satoshi. And the problem they started as the implementers were getting into it, they started running into problems where because when you're redoing a splice, a splice is when you're making a splice, I should say, a splice is a whole Satoshi amount. It's going to be on chain. The only like grant level of granularity that we have to express amounts on chain is in Satoshis. But in Lightning, we maintain balances that are like fractions of Satoshis. So there kind of became this problem of if we're renegotiating a splice and we're doing it as a and we're communicating the, the whole dollar, like a whole Satoshi amount is going to be, what do we do with this like residual Satoshi amount? And the, the suggestion from I think Blue Matt actually was the first one who kind of pointed it out. It's like, okay, you can just leave that because you're just renegotiating renegotiating like a sats amount so instead of having one way that you get around this in the spec then is instead of saying okay we're going to take a 1 million sat channel and make it 2 million sats you say okay I'm going to take my existing channel I'm going to add 100,000 satoshis to it or I'm going to remove 50,000 satoshis and so then rather than so now we're communicating around differences like I want to add or subtract a difference instead of the goal of this new channel balance is like this amount and the nice thing about that then is you can take the existing balance and apply the diff if that makes sense so if I had if I had a channel that had 100,000 sats in it 0.001 satoshis because in lightning you can have fractions of a satoshi and then I said I wanted to add 100,000 sats and I would just take the 100,000 and add that to my existing with the residual balance and it all works out fine there's no complicated math whereas if I had said okay I want to add I want the new channel balance to be 200,000 sats now it's like okay well what do I do with that residual so yeah Merge I think your hands up yeah I I wanted to point out that we had a pretty good and interesting discussion with Taj Dreyer on millisats and even like very small amount of Satoshis being not really representable in the Lightning Network because creating an HTLC costs more than the amount of money that is being transferred. And there's some, some audit, odd behavior around that in general. So if you're interested in that, you could look at the Chain Code Labs podcast from recently. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I also did a presentation at Bitcoin my Bitcoin Conference 2019 around the like substitution payment stuff about where they go and how sort of the security models. So I'll have to check out that podcast that you guys did then. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. I'm curious to see what Taj has to say. Yeah. Anyway. Well, so he hates him. Camille said Tajis. <laughs> yeah, I'm so I'm like a big I'm like pro Satoshis. I think it's a really cool thing that we're able to do in Lightning because I see Lightning as being like pro micropayments. And, you know, at some point when we're at like Satoshi dollar parity, being able to send a fraction of a Satoshi will probably be like a feature, like a killer application of the Lightning Network. So I think it's a useful thing that we should maintain and try and keep as part of what Lightning is capable of doing. We're at a good place because we already added it. We did all the work to make engineering to make it a platform where that's possible. So anyways, but that's like, that's a whole separate discussion. Anyways, I think the relative amount thing is really nice. I also think like, you know, just thinking about it from like designing the UI, it's so much easier to say, okay, I have a channel and I want to add a million 
million sats to it. Or I have a channel and I've got like a balance of fifty thousand of like a hundred thousand sats. I wanna I want to remove fifty thousand sats from this channel or I wanna make a payment out of fifty thousand sats to this channel is I think just from an API perspective and like a spec perspective, just so much easier to think about and reason about because now you're you're making the spec sort of around the intention of what the action that you want to take rather than like, you know, the total amount in the channel is kind of like going to be secondary calculated off of this intention. So yeah, we, I think, I think we've, you know, it took some time. We kind of had to like do a couple iterations here on trying to do it with just like asserting a balance, a goal balance. And now we've gotten to in the spec, you know, you would assert instead of a goal balance for the channel, you would say, you know, a, a relative, an action that I would like to take, I'd like to add or remove like this Satoshi's. And then again, like, it's really cool because then you can express that in Satoshi's and it's very easy to take the existing Satoshi balance from the previous, you know, the funding transaction and either add or subtract that amount and there's no there's no fractions, there's no residuals. You can still hold on to your relative balance kind of as like a secondary thing that you calculate independent of the chain, but we don't have to deal with rounding or yeah, kind of who gets that like weird Satoshi stuff. So I think it'll be kind of a neater way, a cleaner way of, you know, implementing the splicing protocol, which is cool. Yeah, that sounds like it to me as well. I mean, <laughs> you're basically negotiating a change of your current state and talking relative to the agreed upon state just seems way cleaner. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyways, this is kind of like, I mean, some of this placing stuff I think is interesting because I think I think this has been a really good opportunity for us as like lightning spec developers to kind of expose some of what the thinking that goes into protocols, like what does it mean to be a lightning spec, you know, engineer or to work on protocol design? And this is the kind of, these are the sorts, these are exactly the sorts of questions I think that come up and you end up thinking through and making decisions on as like a spec body, which is sort of fun. But definitely, I think different kind of engineering than most people do when they're like writing an application, etc. Rich, did you have a question that we glossed over earlier or anything else that you'd like to talk about regarding splicing? I kind of forgot what I wanted to ask earlier, but I did have one other point. I wanted to point out that there's, of course, a trade-off. If you're making a splice out in order to pay someone on chain, you now need to negotiate and you're dependent on your channel partner to make that payment. So a they learn about the payment, of course, and B, they uh, could delay it or slow it down or, you know, the same stuff that they could do to your Lightning channel. So it's unlikely that they're going to be uncooperative, but there's some some trade-offs. And I was also wondering, I think the, the cost of doing that is pretty good. I was considering how it compares to making an on-chain payment in the first place. But assuming that we're moving to pay to Taproot music channels, it'll look like a Taproot key path spend to create, to spend the funding transaction into the new funding transaction. And therefore, I think it's actually way cheaper than closing a channel and opening a channel or making an on-chain payment in the first place or like similar. So yeah, I, I agree that the, the overall cost structure of using a bigger channel and then splicing out if you need to make on-chain payments seems pretty reasonable. Yeah, and I think one thing that's pretty cool then is like when you have this, like splicing really gives you, I think, the ability to keep more money in Lightning or more sats in Lightning. And the cool thing about that is depending on like kind of your topology and the network, et cetera, 
is that you know every time you have the amount of time in theory this is all kind of a little theoretical again it depends on the network topology and where you are and the liquidity towards you but in theory it means that you're you're able to possibly earn routing fees by on capital that otherwise you might have had on chain etc i invited uh, jim hey jim do you have a question or a comment I struggle to understand the technical stuff, but it's a desire of mine to to understand it. And I missed part of the beginning of this conversation, so if you address it, I apologize. A am I wrong to to view splicing each time you do it as some form of an on-chain transaction has to happen? And if so, how is that different than closing and reopening a channel, except that that sounds like two transactions versus maybe one as an update? Am I seeing this accurately? Thank you. Yeah, thanks for your question. Yes, you do see that accurately. The uh, You're essentially recasting your channel into a new channel. And that requires an on-chain transaction because you're creating a new funding output. And it is cheaper than closing and opening because instead of two transactions, you can do it in one transaction. And since it's cooperative with the other party, we were just talking about the cost of that, assuming that we get the pay-to-taproot, multi-sig, sorry, music, two channels eventually. It'll look like a pay-to-taproot keep half spend. So it's going to be pretty cheap. Thank you for that. Is it inappropriate to ask Lisa to describe how it will be better with L2, which I have heard about, but I, you told me, if you asked me, Jim, what's L2, I couldn't tell you, but I've heard about it, and I know some people are excited about it, and I know it brings benefits if it's adopted, but what would be the difference between splicing and L2, and why is L2 so much better, if that's appropriate for this conversation? Thank you. Yeah, I can I can answer that. Yeah, so splicing and L2 are different. They do different things. You can have either of them independently and they will work just fine. So they're not they're not really like dependent on each other. They're not like they're not really in competition, I would say, in terms of what they're looking to do. Splicing has to do with I have money in a channel. I want to move more money into the same channel or I want to move money out of an existing channel on chain. Splicing is like the way that you're able to do that or one way. I don't know. It's the way that we've been working on that will let you do this. L2 works at a, a different level. It does something different. The kind of thing that you can do with splicing, I'm sorry, with L2 is Right now, whenever you make a payment, it has to do with when you make payments through Lightning channels, how long do you have to remember that you made that payment, if that makes sense. So if I route a payment through my channel from Merch over to Nicholas, how long do I have to remember that I made that payment? Now, I probably like won't know that it was from Merch to Nicholas or whatever, but I do kind of have to remember that at one point in time, I made a, I have like updated, I've, I've moved money through that channel. And I have to remember every single time that I've moved money through a channel because, so this becomes kind of a, we call this sort of like the toxic waste problem on Lightning. And that every time you make a, a, a movement of money through a, through a Lightning channel, you have to remember it. And this is really difficult for backups. It just becomes, it's sort of a nightmare from like a, a, I run a computer and I keep this application working and, 
if anything goes wrong, I can like recover from it. It's, it's quite a difficult situation and problem in this current state of lightning. And that's just how it is. And we've like, anyway, so that's like the current problem. L2 fixes this problem of toxic change. And the way that it does it is it makes it such that you no longer have to remember the historical state of what your channel balances were. Now, all that you have to do is remember the current state of play, the most recent one that you know about. And that becomes all, yeah, so all, so it it goes from being like, I have to, every time I move money through this channel, I have to make a note of it to all I need to keep track of is the is the most recent balance. And so that's an enormously huge savings in terms of kind of backup history like you can throw all the old state away every time a message get every time money gets moved through a channel with l2 and it's it's going to be it's going to be really good i think so but they're separate all right then one more then we'll wrap up the topic i think oh okay yeah so is are you referring to when you say have to remember transactions or channel updates is that so that you can that's like being your own watchtower, essentially, so that the other side of the channel can't close out an old state and uh, without you knowing it because you don't remember it. Is is that what I'm hearing you say? And that L2 takes that away somehow? Exactly. A hundred percent. Yes, that's exactly the, the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, L2 is a new update mechanism for the channel state where we currently use LN penalty. L2 gives us a new way of keeping track of what state the channel has. And with L2, we only need to remember the current state, whereas with LN penalty, we need to remember all previous states and especially the penalty transaction tools so we can punish the other side if they cheat. With L2, we can just overwrite them when they cheat with the latest state. We can always enforce that the latest state happens. So these two are just different ways of updating the channel, whereas splicing, sorry, updating the state of the channel with the funding transaction remaining the same throughout. And with splicing, we change the funding transaction. So we increase the capacity or decrease the capacity of the channel. Excellent. Well, that was quite a a great in-depth news topic on on splicing. We do have another news item that I think we should move on to in the interest of time. There is a new proposed BIP for transaction terminology, and fortunately, we have the author of this proposed informational BIP to talk about the motivation of the BIP and and what's in there. Merch. Hi. Yeah, so... Especially around the office and in my previous job, I used to have lots of discussions about transactions. Bitcoin transactions have a set of components and they have a lot of conceptual aspects that many people use different names for. So, for example, if you think about the script pub key, which is the output script that sets the conditions by which a fund can, a UTXO can be spent. There's there's a number of different ways of referring to that and the function. So anyway, I had a bunch of discussions around the activation of Taproot and started thinking about someone should really set, write up a set of vocabulary so we can skip the part in every conversation about this topic where we first establish what we call everything. <laughs> and yeah, so finally, 15 months later, I've written it up to a degree where I'm happy to share it. I post it to the BitDevs mailing list and not BitDevs, Bitcoin developer mailing list. And 
Yeah, I'm looking for feedback, especially from people that are describing Bitcoin transactions frequently or have written books about the topic or are in the process to take a look at the terms, whether they match their expectations or they would. Yeah. Anyway, there's a link in the in our newsletter if you're interested in that sort of bike shedding and and pea counting, please take a look. And I see Dusty joined us. Hey, yeah, someone just let me know you guys are talking about splicing. I guess I, I guess I missed it. What was the update? Well, at this point, like, uh, we will need to. Sorry, Mike. Uh, at this point, we will need to make you listen to it later because we just finished forty-five minutes of talking about it. <laughs> oh, sure. I was just wondering if there's anything I could add because I'm, you know, kind of right in the middle of all the splicing stuff. Oh, cool. I think we we got it pretty well covered, but uh, maybe if there's follow-up soon when we hear more about the implementations and the spec progress we'll ask you to come on yeah sounds great i mean the the implementation that i've been working on is just about done waiting on lisa actually to finish the review but i'd be happy to talk about it anytime excellent thanks for that dusty yeah we'd love to have you on clearly um there's some interest in this topic as we've gone almost an hour on it so you know perhaps if there's a way to to work it in in a future recap we'd love to have you We'll be publishing this as a podcast, so you can go back and listen and, and feel free to correct anything that, that we've discussed or augment any of that when that's out. Cool. Let's go. Let's do it. The next segment of the newsletter this week involved our monthly segment on the Bitcoin Core PR Review Club. And Larry did the write-up for this, and he chose the PR by Nicholas, who's joined us. That is, don't download witnesses for assumed valid blocks when running in prune mode. And I think we actually covered a Stack Exchange question previously related to this topic. And it's great that we have Nicholas here. I'll let Nicholas speak to his motivation for creating this PR and what exactly it solves. Nicholas? Uh, yeah, so I guess the motivation basically is that it's a performance improvement for initial block download. So it makes initial block download a bit easier because you have to download less stuff. And to be specific, it's currently, it would be around 100 gigabytes that you would save with the PR. Yeah, maybe to get a little bit into how this works, there is, so basically we only, the PR only works if you're running in prune mode and you're using a Zoom valid and a Zoom that is on by default in Bitcoin Core. So prune node is basically when you're, you know, you're a full node, but you don't keep all of the historical blocks. And that's completely fine. You can still validate all new transactions and blocks. The only thing you can't do if you're running in prune mode is serve old blocks to other nodes, but that's sort of just nice of you if you're doing that. And then assume valid is also a performance optimization that is turned on by default where Bitcoin Core skips script validation up to a certain known to be good block. And we every re every release, we update this sort of known to be good block in yeah, in the Bitcoin Core release. And if you're, you know, if you're running prune mode and you're using assume valid, then sort of you're downloading witnesses, but you're not validating them. And then shortly after you're pruning them away. So the PRs basically, instead of doing that, just skip downloading the witnesses. Yeah. Nicholas, in, in your experience, in drafting this PR, was this something that should have been in previously, was considered previously, or it does seem like something that, that should have been in, in an earlier PR, and potentially this was motivated by some of the ordinals witness bloating 
is that what sort of brought this to light or was there discussion of this previously and it, it just wasn't a priority at the time? Yeah, yeah I, I should have said this is not my idea. The, the oldest known like place where this was mentioned that I know of is a blog post from 2016 on BitcoinCore.org where like the blog post in general is about the benefits of SegWit and there's like a one sentence about, you know, we can just skip downloading the witnesses as a performance optimization. And then I don't really know what it, why it hasn't been implemented so far, I guess just nobody worked on it. But also, you know, in the beginning after SegWit, there, were, there wasn't that much witness data, so it wasn't really worth it. But now it's like 100 gigs. And as you said, you know, if we have more stuff like uh, the ordinals or maybe, I don't know, any sort of protocol that produces large witnesses would make this more beneficial. And the thing like where I saw this was a thread by Eric Wall where he talked about how ordinals would make this even better. In the Stack Exchange question that we covered previously, I think Sipa had answered, yeah, we, we hadn't really thought of this, this should be done, but there is there are some additional checks that even if you skip some of the validation, there are some other checks that are done that would need to be that, that would need to be, I guess, explicitly ignored. And there are some questions in the PR Review Club about that. Can, can you talk about those other checks? And wh why does it work out that you don't need to add any specific code for those for skipping those checks in the future? Yeah, so okay, the, the only check that you need to explicitly skip is the, the witness Merkle route. And then like the other checks, I don't actually I can't list all of them. But there are some like resource requirements on like, for example, the size of the witnesses or the size of each witness stack element. And it turns out if you just don't, you know, if you're validating, but you're not even downloading the witnesses, so empty witnesses sort of just by default pass all the checks. If you, you know, if you're skipping script validation entirely, then empty witnesses, you know, they pass all the resource checks and stuff. So that's why it just works out without explicitly handling that. Merch, do you have any questions or comments on this PR? I think I would like to add a metaphor or not metaphor, but you can think of the node just pretending to be a non-segwit node while you're in the assume valid phase. So assume valid in general is an optimization where we do not check the signatures because transactions have been buried so many weeks and months that we assume if there was a mistake in that, nobody would have built such a long chain on them. And we set that explicitly in Bitcoin Core to a few months before the release. So we still rebuild the whole UTXO set from scratch, but we do not check every single signature in that case. So with SegWit, we've moved a lot of those script arguments into the, the witness data, and we're not checking it. So we're downloading it for nothing and then throwing it away immediately when we get to the pruning depth, only for pruning nodes, right? So basically... Yes. We're just short-circuiting that by pretending that we're non-segwit nodes, and we, we download only the stripped transactions, which include the information which UTXOs are destroyed and created. So we still build the whole UTXO set just as we had before. We almost do all the exact same changes, changes, checks that we did before, but we can save about 110 gigabytes of download. And I think if the current... Block space demand keeps up the way it is. That value is going to grow quickly. Yeah, that number can only go up. Yeah, so so thank you for putting this together, Nicholas. Obviously, IBD is important, and folks running nodes is important, and and this seems like a great savings. I think in the Bitcoin Core PR Review Club discussion, a participant pointed out that that 110 gigabytes that was saved is 10% of his ISP down, download limit. So there's 
like real practical gains to be had by this PR. Yep. It's a, I'd say it's a rather easy win. And I mean, the original patch that I opened the PR with was like much simpler than it is now. But yeah, like even if you handle edge cases, I think it's the extra complexity is worth like this big of a win. So, Jim, you have a question? Yeah, interesting that Merch essentially asked a question. I was answered a question I was thinking about with regard to the, the risk of, of not validating stuff. And by comparing it to non segwit node was very helpful for me. In all of Bitcoin, there's always, you know, you have to always look at the downside of any proposal. That's why it's a pull request and it has to get looked at and, you know, everybody wants to be cautious. I don't hear a downside to this, but is anybody vocalizing there's a negative, a negative possible outcome by implementing something like this? You guys all seem super in favor of it. It does seem pretty benign, but I'm just curious. I played devil's advocate. What's the downside? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. So one person in the online discussion brought up that we would essentially reduce the number of people that download the witness data every month and sort of have an actual check on the witness data being present on the network. I think that's sort of true, but doesn't really matter much because I, th I think if we look around in this spaces, for example, a lot of us run a full node to have our complete copy of the blockchain. Currently, full nodes only offer blocks for download if they have the complete block, including witness data. So in order for people to start serving like blocks non-segwit and actually also removing witness data locally, you'd have to assume that they want to have a full copy of the blockchain, but don't want to have the witness data, which seems like a bit of a stretch in the first place for me. And then like gratuitously downloading the witness data for nothing and throwing it away does not seem like the best way of of checking that the witness data is present. Just running a full node with the whole blockchain and then thus down downloading the whole witness data and checking it is a much better check. And I think a lot more people do that already. So I'm, I'm just not at all worried about this vector. But yeah, basically, if we make it too easy and or the fear is if we don't require witness data and make it too easy to not keep the witness data, eventually maybe people won't have the witness data, but I don't I don't share this concern. Nicholas, did you have an, any other potential downsides to add to that? No, that, that would have been the only one that I would also point out. And Nicholas, anything else that you think would be important to outline regarding this PR and the associated PR review club? Uh, not really, but I should focus working on it <laughs> and get it done. <laughs> yeah. What what work remains to be done? I think it's just ironing out edge cases and writing a bunch of tests, mostly. There's some like internal database stuff that I need to figure out which way we want to go, but that's probably too, too deep in the weeds of this podcast. That's fair. Well, thanks, Nicholas, for this PR, and thanks for, for joining us to explain it. Merch, yeah, thanks for onto, the releases and release, onto the releases candidate, release and release candidate section, Merch? Sure, of course. All right. Well, the first one we noted was a security release for LibSecP, um, and it looks like there's an issue related to LibSecP being compiled with Clang version 14 or higher that would allow a vulnerability in the form of a side channel attack. And so there's a strong recommendation to upgrade if you are dependent on libsecp merch are you familiar with this potential for side channel attacks in libsecp and some of the technical details there i i can talk a little bit about the general concern of why we are trying to do this so 
if you are running cryptographic code, you want it to behave from the outside always the same, right? So even if you have different private keys for different signatures, you don't want to have a visible change in the behavior from the outside. So there was, for example, a attack published on Trezor, I think it was probably almost 10 years ago by now, where someone measured the electricity going through the cable of the Trezor while they were signing and was able to to learn the private key just by making lots of signatures because they were drawing a little more power when a bit was set and a little less power when the bit was not set. I think that person then started working at Trezor, so it worked out in the end. They also fixed that. But generally, the the idea is for for all of these crypt- cryptographic operations, you always want to to make sure that it uniformly that it is that there is no leak, no side channel by which you can glean information from from running the code. So Lipsic P implements a lot of the crypto that we use in Bitcoin Core, like the the signing, the inverses and and all that. And all of the relevant things that touch secrets are implemented in constant time. So every time you run it, whatever the secret data is, it will always have exactly the same steps in constant time. And so Clang here was getting to smart, the the library that we use to to run this code, and it optimized out some, some section in cases where it wasn't needed and made it no longer constant time. So this update fixes it. Great explanation, Merch. We had a, a question from the audience. Baljeet? Hey, sorry, I couldn't join earlier on. It's regarding the, the Zoom valid. I have a question, if you don't mind, please. Go for it. Yeah, by doing the Zoom valid, Jim was asking if there's any other trade-offs, but like by introducing, sorry, the, would, would this PR introduce a trust factor? Like, are you trusting someone else to, like, are you assuming that it's already been verified, the signatures have been verified, and that the, the transaction is valid? Instead of checking it yourself, you're you're getting a snapshot of the 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 chain until a certain certain height, and assuming that all those previous transactions are all all valid, is that a concern? So yes and no, but not really. So we're already using assume valid by default in Bitcoin Core when you do IBD. What we do there is basically we check whether a specific block hash is present in the best chain that is being served to you. And if that is the case, up to that point, we assume that the blockchain, all the signatures of the transactions that you will see up to that block are going to be valid. So we assume validity in the signatures. We still look at every single transaction, check that it is well-formed in general. We still build the UTXO set from scratch ourselves. We just don't actually check whether all the signatures were valid. And with the shortcut that Nicholas introduces now, we actually don't download some of the signature data for for short because we're not going to check it anyway. We just sort of, instead of downloading it, going a few blocks further and then deleting it again, we simply don't download it in the first place. So the security trade-off here is 
you still look at the main body of the transaction, this whole strip transaction, and, and check all of that. You check that the transactions were present in the block. You check that the blockchain headers are intact, and that's where actually the proof of work happens. So you check the proof of work, which is very hard to fake. So the the amount of trust is basically just... I trust that someone else has the remainder of the data, the witness data, and could serve it if I wanted it. But other than that, I think it's really benign. Cool. Thanks for that. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, thanks for your question. The next release from the newsletter is the BDK 1.0.0 Alpha.0 release, which we've discussed previously and described in newsletter 243. And we also had Alakos on to explain some of the architectural changes that went on in that. So look back to that newsletter and our recap of it for more details. Moving on to the notable code and documentation changes, we have a, a slew of PRs here, mostly Lightning. The first one is Core Lightning 6012, which implements significant improvements to the Python library for writing Core Lightning plugins. And so Core Lightning has a PyLN client, which serves two different purposes. First, it, it allows you to run commands, Python commands against your Core Lightning node to do certain things. And secondly, it also serves as the basis for making Core Lightning plugins. And Core Lightning has this plugin architecture where if you want to add in functionality, you, you do that in the form of a plugin. And so if you're doing a Python plugin, you would use this library uh, to implement that plugin to add whatever sort of functionality you want to your Lightning node. And this PR added a bunch of gossip-related features to the Python library, which is especially helpful for plugins that do Lightning Network analysis and optimization. Perhaps, Lisa, if you're still on, I don't know if you're familiar with this PR, but you could add to that or correct anything I said. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with it. I was going to see if I could just pull it up really fast to get a look at it. Unfortunately, I don't really, just off the top of my head, let me see if I can find it in the list of stuff. Oh, no, I haven't looked at this, but it seems really nice. Yeah, uh, click into it and look at it here really fast. It's like a Sure. Thing. Maybe uh, Merch can buy you some time. Merch, did you get a chance <laughs> to look at this PR? or? Yeah, I was actually staring at that a little bit this morning in order to figure out just exactly what the extent of the Python part of CLN is. And some, uh, you kind of already answered most of my questions in that regard. So this is a, a attached sort of library that comes with CLN that is only used for these plugins. Is that right? It's not like a re-implementation of the Lightning protocol to, to that would be able to create gossip or anything like that. That's right. Am I, am I can't tell if I've got my speaker on or not. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> right. So PyLN is a part it's in some ways I think of the Coraline like repository as like a little bit of a mono repo not exactly but like there's a lot of like little projects inside of the core lightning github repo and PyLightning client is one of them this particular so what it is is it's a python client that you can use in any python it gets shipped on pypy you can install it using pip so it's a it's a full-fledged kind of independent python library that gets built and updated in inside the core lightning repo. So in this PR, what they've done is they've added a lot more good, a lot more utilities and stuff around helping you parse through and better understand gossip objects. So messages that come over the gossip channel now in Py, PyLightning on the on Python. 
it seems like you'll be able to do a lot more things. One of these that seems pretty cool is that the get half channels thing. I don't, I'm looking at the PR, the third bullet point. It looks What's cool about this is it lets you return an area of channels. It says within a given distance towards a certain node. So I think this is kind of like this this particular new method that they've added would make it such that you're able to look for basically start building a route, right? So it'll give you kind of like route candidates is my understanding, which is pretty cool. Anyways, I don't know how helpful that is. But... Super. Thank you for adding color. Yeah. Thanks, Lisa. There's another Core Lightning PR, Core Lightning 6124, adding the ability to blacklist runes with the Commando plugin and also maintain a list of runes, which is useful for tracking and disabling compromised ones. So Commando is a plugin that we've talked about previously, allowing a node to receive commands from peers, actually using LN messages to execute commands on the Core Lightning node who's allowing those requests. And the authorization piece here is something called a rune. And the PR here is two parts. One is the ability to list all of those runes that have been initiated on that core lightning node. And then the second part of the PR is the ability to blacklist or disable a rune. Or if you're suspicious that the rune has been compromised or the machine that that rune was on was compromised, you can, you can blacklist that so that those remote commands can no longer work. Lisa, I would defer to you on any commando related things as well. Yeah, that's right. I think you I think you nailed it pretty much there. Yeah, you answered all my questions. (laughs) Great. Next PR here is an Eclair one, Eclair 2607, adding a list received payments RPC that lists all the payments received by the node. Seems fairly straightforward and, and fairly useful. One thing that I noticed in going through this PR is that the PR also initially attempted to add a list expired invoices RPC, which could have some benefits for accounting purposes. If, if you wanted to know what sort of invoices you sent out that, that are expired, it could be useful from for some people on an accounting aspect, but that RPC was removed because there were questions about the usefulness of that use case. And also the fact that Eclair apparently purges old expired invoices from the database periodically. So that, that RPC, at least, at least by default, it, it purges those from the database. So maybe that RPC wouldn't be as reliable. So it was removed from this PR. Merch, any comments on Eclair? No, you keep saying everything I wanted to ask already. Great prep. Great. Next PR is to LND, LND 7437, adding support for backing up just a single channel to a file. So it seems like maybe there was a bug there, since if you wanted to back up a single channel and you were able to provide a a file that you wanted that channel backed up to, it actually just spit out all the output to the console in, in JSON format, as opposed to packing that into a file as you requested. So I think this PR fixes that, and it also adds the capability to verify that channel backup and restore that channel from a single that single channel from a file as well. Anything to add, Merch? All right, great. LND seventy sixty nine, allowing a client to send a message to its watchtower asking for a session to be deleted. We had some discussion about watchtowers last week with Sergey, and I would invite people to jump back into that to familiar familiarize themselves with watchtowers and this whole idea of deleting a session. This PR is for the LND implementation of watchtowers, which has both a client and a server. 
the client being the node that is using the server as a watchtower. And when that client has a session that's no longer needed for monitoring for on-chain transactions, that client of the watchtower can now send a message to the watchtower server, letting it know that it can stop that monitoring and it can actually delete any of the data that it has. So being nice to the watchtower server there to be able to free up some resources. And one thing that I saw in this PR that is a bit relevant to our discussion last week is that there is a, a random amount of time that the client will wait before it sends the delete message. So as to not give away too much information to the watchtower, which obviously would help with privacy. Yeah, although it does seem to identify whether all of the updates that it's sending belong to one channel. So you're also going off of the discussion with Sergey last week, it it seems to at least identify the uh, channel, like when, when updates belong to the same channel. Otherwise, it couldn't delete all of it in a single go either, right? That makes sense. Well, anyway, I, I, I looked it over a little bit. I think you got all the, the important parts. Last PR for this week is to the BIPs repository, BIPs 1372, assigning the number BIP 327 to the MUSIG2 protocol for creating multi-signatures. We've, we've talked a bit about MUSIG even, even today. Merch, maybe it would make sense to give a, a brief overview of MUSIG2 in, in the route to this BIP and why you think it might be important for the Bitcoin ecosystem. Yeah, sure. So um, y'all probably have heard about how Taproot enables public key aggregation, which means that while it looks like a single public key in the output we actually might have multiple keys involved under the hood. And this is specifically Music2 offers a protocol to allow a signature scheme in the sense that K of K signers can sign off and it will look like a single public key and a single signature. So this is, for example, super interesting in the context of Lightning, where we have two of two participants that need to agree on a new state. Instead of having um, a two of two multi-sig setup, we now have something that looks on the chain like a single sig pay to taproot output, but under the hood has still the same behavior that both parties have to sign off and create this signature together. So one of the huge benefits that we expect is that some of the multi-sig users will be able to move to the music construction and will look exactly like single sig on-chain, both getting the lower on-chain cost because the transaction gets smaller smaller and being indistinguishable from single SIG user use. And so, yes, I, I've seen some complaints how Taproot hasn't been useful at all yet and why nobody is using Taproot yet. And I think I want to point out here that some of the core features that people were excited for getting in the context of Taproot are just rolling out now after they are finally specced. I know that Moon has been using two of two basic constructions already before the spec was finalized. I think they've been closely cooperating with with the authors of the BIP, but now I think that other implementers and users will also want to move on this more. This is also, for example, interesting in cases where you have a threshold setup. So, for example, at my old employers, we used two or three multisig wallets, but two of those keys were way more likely to sign. So um, you would encode a two of two as the key path 
on a page to taproot. And when those two keys sign, they can just create a signature together and it looks like single sig. And you would only ever reveal that it was a two or three in the case that you need to fall back to a different quorum, like two other signers, and then reveal that there's a script path that had a leaf script where the other two parties could sign. So overall, I think this will make it cheaper for business use cases to, to produce transactions. It will improve the privacy because more users will look exactly in or the same scheme, like they're using the same output types and schema. And well, sorry, I've been rambling for like 20 minutes. Any other questions about this? Anyway, it's finally a BIP and it is BIP 327. And that's exciting. I think there, there there's some confusion that I see online often with multi-sig versus multi-signature versus threshold signature. So with, I just attempt to clarify that a bit. With the MuSig2 protocol, it's a multi-signature protocol. So you, you would have to have M of M. So two of two, three of three. Merch outlined that there's ways that you can do that and, ha and also have fallback. But if you wanted to do threshold signatures with Schnorr signatures, there are different protocols that are in the works for that. So those would be something like Frost that, that we've covered in the newsletter and Roast, which are, would be threshold signature schemes that would allow for you know two of three in, in a Schnorr type setup, as opposed to having the the key path being you know MuSig and a multi multi signature, and then falling back to script paths to to do the two of three. So there, there there's a nice table that we have on the threshold signature topic on the Bitcoin Optech website, as well as the multi signature topic. It sort of gives you a good visualization of the differences between multi-sig, multi-signature, and threshold, threshold signature. We have a couple speaker requests. And if you also have a question, feel free to request speaker access and we can get to your question. Jeet, you have another question? Yes, please. Yeah, Does, I know there might be no correlation, but is there any relation to, to the, the pay join at all with, the, with, this, with this setup? Or is it totally different? So a pay join generally just means that you're doing a multi-user transaction. And that means that multiple participants are contributing inputs to the transaction. It doesn't necessarily mean that they need to use Taproot or even aggregated public keys. It's just more on who contributes funds to the transaction. One of the connections that had come up with Taproot before is for a long time, Schnorr signatures were also traded with the notion that we would be able to aggregate signatures across whole transactions so that if you use Schnorr-based inputs, you would be able to only have a single Schnorr signature for all of those inputs. And the idea here would be that coin joins and the specific case of pay join would be financially attractive or economically attractive because it would be cheaper to have a transaction with more inputs than it would be to have one with fewer inputs. Since now the signature data is aggregated and you only have to pay for one signature instead of a signature on every input. So there would be an economic incentive to join transactions into a single transaction in order to, to have smaller overall block space use. The problem is that that is fairly complicated and it was years away at the point when people got really excited about being ready with Taproot and it was separated into future work. So right now the proposal cross-input signature aggregation is still 
under research and we'll have to see what happens in the future. We had another speaker request from Peace. Peace, did you have a question? Okay, perhaps not. It doesn't look like there's any other questions. Hello. Oh. Hello. Can you hear my voice? We can hear you. So I heard I'm just a beginner in Lightning developer kit I'm trying to use. As well as I was looking, I'm a solidity developer. I, I built a DApps on uh, Ethereum. So is there any like EVM compatible solution that I can use my existing projects that I wrote in solidity for the Lightning Network? I'm not familiar with any Lightning Network implementations that interface with Ethereum at all. I think that's not likely to happen anytime soon. So I, I would be surprised if you do find something like that. I do know that there's stuff that interacts with derivatives of Bitcoins like wrapped Bitcoin. And maybe people have been doing something in that regard. But I, I, I don't think we would know about that sort of effort on this end because... We only look at Bitcoin stuff, not Ethereum. There may be some compatibility with some of these projects building on Bitcoin with respect to things like maybe RSK, Rootstock may have some feature parity with, with some of the programming languages, but that's not something that we're super familiar with here. Okay. So as, as far as the Lightning development is concerned, like uh, what would you recommend? Like which document should I go through? That's a broad question, Merch. Where would you point somebody who wanted to do Lightning-related development to, to get started? Mm, I think Kim's starting point might be the recently published Mastering Lightning. I think Mastering Lightning Network book, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos and other authors. I think that it's maybe still a living document and that there's a few references that are getting improved, but I, I hear people are reading it successfully. And we also have a Lightning Protocol Developer Seminar on the Chaincode page under learning.chaincode.com. So maybe if you look at that, you could find some interesting content. There's a lot of talks and articles that we've collated that cover different aspects of the Lightning Network. So even if you don't want to join the seminar, you can find the content and just look it over to get a pretty good overview of how Lightning works, how the Lightning Protocol is being developed. So that would be learning.chaincode.com. Thanks, Merch. It doesn't look like we have any other questions or comments. So any anything further that you would add? Any announcements, Merch? Uh, nothing new from me. Well, thanks to my co-host, Merch, as always. Thanks to Lisa for joining us and Nicholas for joining us to opine on the work that they've been doing. It's very appreciated. Thank you also for the people coming up with their questions. We, we're happy to be able to, to address you guys directly because that's why we're doing it on Spaces and not a different platform. All right. Thanks, everybody, for your time, and we'll see you next week. Cheers.